You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Domino, I need your help. Of course. That's why you made love to me. Look, I can't explain what this is all about. But you must trust me. Because you want me to help you. Look, Lago had your brother murdered, or it was on his orders. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people will die, and very soon, if you don't help me. That much we do know, but there's something we don't. The bombs, when they're being loaded aboard the Disco Volante. How could I know that? That you'll have to find out. It won't be easy. It could be very dangerous. What can he do to me he hasn't already done? Then you'll do it? Yes. Good. This is a Geiger counter. You press this lever. If it starts clicking, it means the bombs are aboard. What do I do then? Go straight up on deck. As the disco volante is being watched, you'll be spotted. Vargas behind you. Really? He must have followed us. I think he got the point. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the 602 Club Trek FM's dedicated general geek show. I'm so excited to be here tonight. Uh, coming at you live, uh, well, as live as we can be on a podcast from sunny Jamaica. Got to the wonderful spread here at Goldeneye. It's just fantastic. Sitting back here with my good friend, John Champion. John, how's it going? Uh, Matt, if it's general geek, does that make me like uh, lieutenant colonel geek or uh, commander geek? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I yeah. I think um I think your lieutenant uh, no 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 I I think um I think you're like a field general. Okay, yeah, well, that's fair. General you know, as field long as general. I can give yeah. orders to private geek. Yeah, so I no I you you're not all the way down it at private geek. <laughs> I mean, you're at least a lieutenant commander. So oh, good. Yeah, good. <laughs> right. I feel good about that. Excellent. And of course, uh, everybody's just listening, thinking they're they're just kind of mixing in. What they think of as like Star Trek ranks and actual yeah. army ranks. We don't so know. I apologize know. to anyone. I mean, my wife was in the army, and and uh, and I I still don't even know. So um, she was no a, emails. Yeah, she was a specialist, and I just call her the specialist, which always pisses her off. She's like, I'm not oh. the specialist. I'm just a specialist. I anyway, know, I, I like yeah. You put V in front of anything. Yeah, it's like yeah. the doctor. You know. Mm -hmm. With a definite article, totally changes everything. So, nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, tonight, uh, of course, uh, I think everyone can tell we're back here to talk a little bit of James Bond. And we're already on the fourth James Bond film. And, of course, uh, the fourth film with Sean Connery, which is very exciting. And before we dive into Thunderball, just quick reminder, of course, you can find us all over the place, uh, itunes.com slash trekfm. You can find all the trekfm shows along with the 602 Club. While you're there, just leave us a star rating and review. Appreciate all the people who have already done that before. Uh, right now, we have a perfect five-star rating. I really want to say thank you guys because... You have no idea what that means to me, but personally, too, it, just for the show, it really 
does a wonder for helping us grow. So continue to keep those reviews and ratings coming. And uh, I'll keep thanking you guys for all the wonderful work that you do on behalf of the show by doing that. So thank you so much. You can find us on Twitter at TrekMM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekMM. Of course, we've got our listeners-only discussion group, too, the Babel Conference. Just check that out. It's a wonderful place to have a conversation. Type Babel in the search field there on Facebook, and you'll find us. And, of course, if you'd like to leave a voicemail, we're at speakpipe.com slash trekfm. And if you are like a few of our listeners recently, we, we had some wonderful emails recently. I really want to thank everyone who's uh, emailed in. I've got a chance to respond, so thank you so much. Trek.fm slash contact. Choose the show, 602 Club. That comes straight to me, and I get to share that with any of the hosts. Uh, and uh, really appreciate the feedback and, and all the wonderful things that people have had to say. So keep them coming. It's great. Now, John, this is an interesting Bond movie, and it has an interesting... Bond history, uh, because this is the film that when Cubby Broccoli and Saltzman got together, this is the one that they wanted to make. Now, rewind that, though. How did this book come to be, John? Because there's a really interesting history behind the book itself before the film. Really? So you'll have to tell me, you'll actually have to educate me uh, about that. I... I my experience with Thunderball and um, then what became Never Say Never Again <laughs> was was really following kind of the uh, the the rights and intrigue and court battles to move those rights around so that uh, this movie could get made and then later on the uh, the unofficial non eon productions version of thunderball could get made um and yes of course this was the book that originally uh cubby broccoli wanted to make but it, as far as the the book being created you've you've got to fill me in there because that's actually a, a gap in my knowledge well what's what's so interesting about this so uh, around 1961 uh ian fleming is approached by Kevin McClory and Jack Whitman, and they all decide um, they are going to try to turn Bond into a film. Mm -hmm. uh, so they write a script uh, with uh, Kevin McClory and Jack uh, Whittingham, and uh, you know, things. Basically, what happens is that Fleming gets bored with the process, uh, <laughs> walks away from from everything, ends up taking ideas from that script and, and those those conversations and turns them into what we know as the book Thunderball. So that when they go to make this film, it is in dispute because Kevin McClory and Jack Winningham are suing him. They're doing that shortly before the publication of the novel in 61, claiming, of course, that... Uh, this was based on their screenplay, the trio had written earlier on their failed cinematic transition, and the lawsuit isn't settled out of court until obviously before they start filming Thunderball here in 1965, and they make the deal that McClory is going to serve as the sole producer on the film, and uh, I believe even uh, Jack Winningham has a credit as well for writing. So yeah, there's this he kind does, of like... Yeah sordid history with the yeah. film and the and yeah. the book in the first place and i think uh, we can all agree it does kind of sound like fleming wasn't probably the most upfront uh with the creation of the book thunderball and probably they had some reason for doing this so 
finally gives them the opportunity that once they settle out of court in 1963 that they can finally make the film Thunderball, which led me really to the question for you, which I, I think is mm-hmm. is a really interesting question. How do you think that this would have worked as the first James Bond film? You know, there are two ways to answer that question. <laughs> the My knee-jerk reaction is to say it would have been a disaster, quite honestly, because when you look at Dr. No, part of the thing that makes Dr. No work so well is, is that, like I said on this show a few months ago when we first talked about it, the only thing that they had to concentrate on, the, the, the only obligation that they had in making that movie was to the story, was to the script. Right, right. And therefore, it's a really tight, really slick little movie. Everything just sort of moves along really nicely, right? Well, and the, yeah, the set pieces aren't huge and out, out yeah. of whack. I mean, just when we think of what Bond becomes, yeah, definitely. Right, right. And, and given the budget that they had for that movie and given what they put on the screen, it all just sort of works. It all just sort of clicks into place. And then they realize later, oh, wait, we have a hit. We can keep doing more, right? And the problem with Thunderball, at least the way that this script is for the movie, you know, the, the 1965 movie Thunderball, you've got a much more sprawling scope. And you could not have done this movie for the million dollars that they did Dr. No. Now, that said, that, that's why my knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, they couldn't do it. That said, though, had they taken this story, had they taken this script and said, okay, you've got to do this for a million bucks, you can't do it for, what was it, $5 million at the time? Because it, it was bigger than the budget of the first three combined. Yes, yes. The budget is $9 million, which I know sounds million. so okay. small today, but yes, still a huge sum. At yeah. the time, yeah, yeah. So it was bigger than Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger combined by the time they made this. So I think that if you had taken the script and you had slashed it down to a million-dollar budget, you would have had a very different film, but you might still have ended up with a film that works in some weird way, because there's an efficiency to the storytelling of at least the first two movies that I really like. Mm, yeah. Yes. And I'm usually afraid when people say, hey, the last movie was such a hit, we're going to double the budget. And I think, okay, by doubling the budget, are you also bringing in the best writers that you can get? Are you right. also bringing in the best story editors that you can get? Or are you just going to put more explosions on the screen? So there may have been an opportunity to actually make this a better movie had they been forced to make this for the tiny budget that Dr. No uh, was made. It would, it would have been probably unrecognizable from the Thunderball we know now. But I don't know that that just means it would have been a bad movie. I, I, I don't think so. You know, it's really hard to say, really hard to answer that in hindsight. You know, it, it's interesting when I'm, I'm thinking about the other films and, you know, how this this would have worked. You know, so let, let's just put it this way. Dr. No is 109 minutes long as a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Russia with Love is 115 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, uh, move 
we moved to Goldfinger, and it is 110 minutes long. The interesting thing about uh, Thunderball is that we moved to that, and it is 130 minutes long. Every so minute of it, my friend. Every, every minute of it. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and see, I think your thought process is exactly what I was thinking, too, because any of the issues that I have in this film are the overindulgence that they give to the movie with what they can do underwater. And I understand that, that for the time period, what they're doing is revolutionary. Nothing like this had ever been done before. But they're so in love with themselves because of it that it's almost as they're patting themselves on the back. Uh, they've padded the movie with probably 20 minutes too much uh, here. And if they, like you're saying, if you don't have the $9 million, maybe you only have five. You yep. can only do half the scenes underwater, maybe. And you probably end up with, like you were saying, a tighter, uh, firmer script that just feels more together. And that's that's one of the things, like you were saying, with Dr. No from Russia with Love, there's such a simplicity to the storytelling. Nothing feels overblown. And what's interesting is Thunderball doesn't feel as overblown, I feel, as uh, the crazy antics in Goldfinger. It just feels longer, and therefore it makes me feel like it's overblown. But it's real. I mean, with the plot you think of, it's really not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it is the the underwater stuff. I, I feel like we're sort of jumping ahead to the end here, but That's I, okay. I think I think it's yeah, uh, it's worthwhile to yeah. get out. Yeah. You know? Part of the trouble here is the underwater stuff and spending that budget to show you all the cool things they can do with their underwater gadgets and all the great photography. But the other part of it is I feel like there are scenes that maybe two or three or four times in the movie had a different story editor been around, those could have been condensed into one or two scenes rather than yes, three or four yes, scenes. yes. So it's not just the underwater stuff. And maybe part of the, the issue there is the underwater stuff could have been moved some other place in the movie. I'm not sure exactly how that would have gone, but you have a, a really weird accelerated kind of act three where you have a lot of underwater battle and then, boy, that finale is just a finale, and you're, you're done. And it's kind of like the end of From Russia with Love, where we just said, okay, well, we ran out of film, time to stop the movie, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's just a, a strangely paced movie. You know, I, I don't feel that any movie needs to be um, beholden to its original source material, uh, it, whether it's a book or a comic book or whatever. I feel like the filmmakers just need to make the best movie they can make. Uh, and I should say that, you know, sometimes by doing that, you do need to uh, pay great attention to the original source, but, but right. sometimes you don't because the movie needs to stand on its own. This is one of those times where I feel like, well, maybe if this had gone through another pass or two, then this could have been tightened up into a little bit different script. And then maybe a, a, a different editor, a different film editor would have done something differently with the, uh, with all of those underwater shots and then some of the scenes that don't quite play right. But that that's just to sort of get it all out in the open yeah. up front. What we're dealing with here, which I think is partly due to 
what you described, the background on the story, the background on the book, how and why this was written, and, um, and then what became of it later. Well, and what's interesting is that I think uh, just speaking of the budget, you know, being $9 million, I think that there is some huge benefit to that because they are able to build these incredible submarines. All those little submarines you see are actually working props that do exactly what they're supposed to do. So all of that stuff, you know, that's what really comes across is the reality of everything that we're using. You know, there's no invisible cars here made out of CGI or bad surfing with CGI. There's none of that stuff. Everything is so real here. Um, Oh, yeah. And and even the Disco Volante. Oh, yeah. Which is an incredible. Uh, I mean, they had no idea you could even do that. Yeah. But they (laughs) actually made that ship and it works just like it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible stuff. So, I mean, they they really do benefit themselves with the budget. I think we're what we're knocking is that there needed to be a better pacing in the edit, because like you were saying, look, some films benefit from being longer. I think the the Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition, much better film. It's 30 minutes longer, but it does what it needs to do to tell mm-hmm. a better story. I think the same thing for the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings. I enjoy the Hobbit movies extended. Um, those are different subjects, but uh, I think sometimes longer is better, but not always. And I think here uh, with uh, some of the editing choices that they made, if they had cut some scenes down a little bit, like the chase scene in in the parade, uh, the uh, second round of searching for uh, the downed Vulcan fighter, uh, it could have been cut down big time or just left one of them out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You could also have uh, definitely cut down all the underwater scenes. Uh, doing all that, again, that's about probably 20 minutes and you're, you're golden. You know, you're yeah. right within that kind of James Bond framework. Um where we have been. So yeah, I think yeah, it's um it's a really interesting thing and it makes sense because remember what we were talking about last time where we were James Bond at this point they want to be bigger and better than Goldfinger. So mm-hmm. this is where that excess of Bond I think starts to become maybe an issue. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I mean I I there's no no other way to put it. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly sort of. Uh, it, maybe it's too early to call it fatigue, but uh, but victims of their own success in a uh, in a respect here. And and on top of that, can I? I really want to ask you. I think a another really interesting question on top of that that it's very related. Did you sense it all that Connery himself was starting to get tired in this film? Because mm. to me, Connery. I feel like looks tired in this movie. He doesn't look mm. his best. Bluntly, I, I think his rug is a little bit too far back on his head. Um, he, and his his whole demeanor, he feels tired. There's the scene where he's having that wonderful conversation that's so pivotal, the entire thing with Domino. He puts on his sunglasses. It's blocking yeah. all the emotion that you would have in his face. So it completely ruins the pivotal moment for both of those characters uh so i I don't did you feel that or is that just me you know what i i wonder i didn't think of it the way that you're thinking of it that that it's connery being tired or connery being just a little 
you know, up to here with it at that point. But it's interesting you say that. My my impression was that there was a little bit of maybe the the spark or the humor not in his performance. So you open with this kind of silly idea, silly now, not at the time, but you know, he's he's beating up a woman who we reveal to be not a woman. It's a man. That's a man, baby. <laughs> it had so, to be done. But, you know, it's kind of this silly scene. And, and, and I think about shots of Connery in Goldfinger where it looks like he's having fun. There's kind of this wry smirk on his face. And he, when he, even when he's confronted, you know, by a gun in Goldfinger's jet by Pussy Galore when he's sort of schooling her on not shooting through him and the fuselage. There's this sort of uh, a, a tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of a twinkle in the eye about that. In this movie, something that drove me a little bit crazy, I think at least twice, maybe even three times, he starts out a bit of dialogue by saying, my dear girl. And it's very sort of patronizing, and it's something that worked once in Goldfinger because he's about to give the lesson about champagne and about the Beatles. Right. Okay. But in this, it just felt like, wow, they found a line that worked and now they're going to hammer you over the head with it. And, and the, the novelty of it is lost then because Connery himself delivering that line has sort of lost the novelty. Mm, of yes, it. yes. So the whole thing plays, at least from his point of view, just a little more serious. And not that we would ever, you know, fault it just for being serious. Bond always swings on that pendulum. Well, and it, and I think we talked about in uh, From Russian with Love that movie is very serious. There's some there's a yep. really intense stuff that happens in there. And I mean that train fight for one. I'm thinking mm. there's nothing funny about that. That is just. Right. Mono a mono, you know, that that is as brutal as it got until you got, I think, the Dalton films, really. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, there we, we, we're definitely not saying we yeah. don't like serious. But you feel like he's really invested in that fight. Scene. Right. Yes. Yes. And and in this, the and maybe it has to do again, partly with the pacing of the movie. You feel like there's just sort of like a lot of walking around. <laughs> you know, um, and, and I know you like the detective work and I like the detective work, too. I felt like there was a lot of detective work in this movie that could have been condensed into slightly less detective work. <laughs> you know, No, I completely agree. I, I think that that's that's part of it, too. I think that the whole I'd say that the film is two thirds a good movie because I feel like the mm -hmm. first thirds of the film, the first two thirds, uh, it's a good film. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's very much in line, I think, with uh, what they had done in From Russia with Love kind of thing. And Dr. No, it's feeling like those films. It's feeling on par with that. And then that last third of the movie, everything just kind of goes a little bit bonkers in the sense that like the editing and the pacing really start to just get thrown out of whack, you know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, it's um, I, I but I. I don't know. I, for me, and I'll I'm, I'll be interested as we jump into uh, in in about a month or so. You only live twice to see if that glint continues to diminish, like that fire begins to die. Uh, as, if that continues to happen, or if he feels like he gets it back, then 
Yeah. But I'm just wondering too, you know, you're doing these films back to back to back to back. It almost seems like Connery himself, I it just feels like in this film he was tired. Just uh, just I'm, as a person. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And and I was trying to chalk it up to what's happening in the story, what's happening with the editing, what's happening with the pacing here. Why is it that something feels a little bit off? And I think that's part of the combination of what felt a little off. Um, and, and like I said, you know, uh, uh, my biggest fear is that when a filmmaker is suddenly given everything that they need and they stop feeling the pressure of, again, the obligation to the story, the obligation becomes something else like, well, well, how do we make this look bigger? How do we telegraph to the audience that this is bigger and better? And, and that's a lot of what happens here. I think it's the radio ads for this. If you have that 30th anniversary uh, CD set and they include some of the radio mm -hmm. ads in mm -hmm. the movies and it's Dr. No, big from Russia with love, bigger, Goldfinger, even bigger. Now comes the biggest bond of all. And I was thinking, you're just selling this on being big. <laughs> you're not selling this on being great bigger isn't always better too as right, we know right right yeah <laughs> well, i mean it's, not it's that bond would say that but yeah yeah it's tough to come off of goldfinger no matter what it is and and it's tough to come off of goldfinger when you also have dr no one from russia with love kind of having built you up to goldfinger so yeah i i it's one of those things where you kind of want to be a fly on the wall with the writing process of this movie. And and I feel like I want to be a fly on the wall when Connery is just kind of maybe by himself to see mm -hmm. how he's acting. Uh, and, and because I remember when we were talking about Goldfinger, you know, he uh, and even in some of the extras, they mentioned the phenomenon that's happening with Bond at that point, and he's just being hounded by press and people, and you know he can go nowhere without being recognized at this point. He's an international superstar, mm -hmm. and I'm just—it it seems like maybe all of that might be starting to to get to him. And we have to think about it. Sean is not a young man at this point, and he he really right. isn't. He's he's middle age, and so I think maybe that's just part of it. Is it is starting to slowly show that Sean is getting older. He doesn't look as young as he did, you know, three four years ago. That's because right. he really isn't. And right. I can speak for myself. I look at my you know pictures from maybe five six years ago. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how much younger <laughs> I looked. It's just crazy, you know. Yeah, so, no. um, we can all look in the mirror and understand how that happens, and just imagine all of the uh, interviews and the parties and the filming and the late nights and it just, you know, drinking and smoking. It all, you know, gets to you. Uh, so yeah. I think yeah. it's definitely starting to get here. What's really interesting is is thinking about. From a story perspective, Bond needs a holiday. Because, yeah, right. right. Uh, and, and what I thought was really interesting, you know, most of the time the pre-credit sequence doesn't really have anything to do with the film. But in this movie, it actually leads specifically into why Bond is doing what he's doing next. And I had to say, that start, again, the beginning of this movie is pretty fabulous. One, because, you know, you have the jetpack, which no well-dressed <laughs> man should be without, uh, right, and that's a real jetpack. It, it, the, the yeah. thing was something that worked. It's crazy. Um, I don't know why we don't all have 
jetpacks now. Well, you know why? Because they have 21 seconds of flying time. Oh, yeah. 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 It's not really worth yeah. it. No. So you, you had one at the World's Fair in New York in 1964. And I'm sure that every 11-year-old who went to that fair and saw that being demoed there thought, oh, I'm going to have one of those in two years at home. And no. <laughs> so only a couple of versions were ever made. One of those used uh, in this movie. And um, I, I can't remember if it was one of the inventors who actually did that stunt work. Uh, I believe you're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you you had 21 seconds of flying time. Amazing how everything had sort of worked out. I'm I'm kind of amused that you have the fight scene. You have Bond running up onto the roof. Fortunately, the jetpack is there. I mean, I always just leave my jetpack lying around at the most yeah. strangely odd places, like in the top the totally of the roof. Totally opportune. Yeah. 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 And then he has got time to put the helmet on and strap the thing in and make sure the belt buckles are all there. And then get he flies in front of the away. blue screen. Right. Get in front of the blue screen, fly away, and then literally in seconds take it off and stash it in the trunk of the, the DB5. It's almost as believable as a tuxedo under that uh, satin dive suit. Or as believable as the water spraying out the exhaust actually moving back and forth just to hit the people specifically that right, i mean right. yes yes um what's i love about it though is something that i feel like was a little bit unique to this movie in the sense that they show bond getting hurt they show yeah. bond needing to time to recuperate he can't just go from mission to mission to mission you know, you get hit in the side with a poker and beat up. That that doesn't mean that you can just go. I mean, you're going to need probably, you know, four, five weeks or more of recovery time. And I thought that was very interesting. I mean, it is wonderful that he lands at the same place that Spectre is also planning their nefarious deeds. Uh, <laughs> but it it creates a nice way to begin the film and make that pre-credit sequence, I think, really mean something uh, because sometimes it's just a bunch of fun, and this time it, it actually led right into the story, which I just I really loved. Yeah, no, totally agree. It, it was a cool way to set it up, and and it now birthed from that is this fun little spy trope of the bad guy dressed as a woman, and only Bond knows and follows him uh, uh, to then beat him up and, and escape in a in a daring escape. It's a fun scene, and and I do like that it justifies where uh, where Bond ends up. We don't see Bond too often having to recover, but we do a, a, a few more times in in the series. But you know, you think four films into it is about time that oh you know, yeah, a little recovery. And I I think what um what makes it interesting is the plot with which you start to get embroiled in at this point with Spectre is a it's a devious and fascinating plot using a lot of things that have just become big in the 60s, like plastic surgery. Well, yeah, I, I think that's what's cool about this plot. You know, going where we have with um, with the first three movies, and, and you made a really good point about Goldfinger. Goldfinger is just a crook. You know, right, wh whether, right. it's, whether it's changing gold markets because of setting off a nuclear bomb at Fort Knox, 
or just walking into a bank and robbing a bank. That's the kind of guy he is. That, and that, that's a, as far as his vision goes, is just uh, you know, giving himself some wealth. But now we've built this deeply complex web with Spectre. And I love that this is the introduction of the, again, this kind of trope that, that shows up in spy movies again, where you just have a, a bad guy headquarters and they've got electrified seats and you've got a bad guy with a cat and he's got a, his finger on the button of every one of those seats. I've been very badly burned. <laughs> Maybe you could send down a Band-Aid or some analgesic cream. <laughs> it just works so great. And seeing this and thinking, okay, that's the first time they did something like this on film. Ah, oh, it's you know? awesome. Yeah, and the set, really I mean, well. the set alone is just a marvel of... Beautiful. modern architecture at that point it's just stupendous beautiful for all the the shapes that uh ken adam gave us you know uh, going back to dr no you you have this room with the the kind of round ceiling and the lattice work with the light shining through it and, and then in goldfinger you of course have his marvelous uh depiction of the, the fantasy version of um Fort Knox, but even then you have the super modern lair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yeah. Is. But in this, he he's changing up the shapes again, and and that super long vision you've got of Spectre's headquarters, just incredible. I love that there's no table in the middle. It's just like this long runway. Like you could have Fashion Week there. And it would be totally appropriate. I think they do have evil fashion week there. Maybe they do. Yeah. Maybe they do. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of skinny suits and skinny ties. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, black dresses are very yeah. popular. Yep. Yep. And, <laughs> and a lot of rings. Yeah. A lot of rings that advertise. Exactly <laughs> Which I meant to wear are. mine. I've got it yes, over on yeah, the shelf yeah. over there. I've got yep. it. Yep. So, um, but yeah, that that plot you you introduce elements to that the idea of stealing the nuclear bombs, the idea of ransoming world governments, doing all of that. This is the stuff that we think of when we think about Bond, and it's a much more technologically driven plot. Not to say that Goldfinger's didn't have an element of technology to it as well, um, and certainly the Lecter machine in uh, uh, from Russia with Love. There, there were technologies in there, but but this is something that I think that for an audience then, and even an audience now, you can kind of, you can kind of get it, and you can say, okay, here are all the steps that we're going to do to infiltrate the RAF, to get to this Vulcan jet, to get to those bombs, carry them away. I mean, it's it's deeply complex, and in a weird way, quite believable. And I, I think that's the thing that's so scary is that Spectre here feels very realistic, even in the world with which we inhabit, because there are so many rogue, na- uh, to use uh, Mission mm-hmm. Impossible, rogue nations, basically, uh, yeah. rogue elements that are out there that we could see planning this kind of thing. And the way in which you would implant yourself in different agencies. And this is a plan, obviously, that, uh, you know, uh, number two, uh, Emilio Largo has been put into play for a very long time. And I think Bond getting mixed up in that is, it doesn't seem all that unfamiliar to what we're experiencing in our world now. Uh, Spectre just feels like 
you could picture an ISIS meeting like this if they had, you know, those kind of the budget. Yeah. Yeah, If they had the budget, exactly. (laughs) Um, You know, but you could picture that kind of happening at an evil organization who's hell bent on the destruction of, of the West and our values and all that. And and anybody that they just don't like, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. West or East. (laughs) It's just in their way. Right. Uh, anything else, you know, with with Bond needing a holiday, getting into the plot here, was there anything else specifically about uh, just kind of the plot of the the movie that really jumped out to you that you did and, and it really just worked for you? No, you know, I mean, I, I think the, the concept is solid. Um, it, it is interesting that, you know, we kick things off with Bond getting orders but then saying, no, I've got a hunch. I've got a better idea. And this is the time that M says, all right, I believe you were going with your idea. There really isn't much resistance on his part, given that Bond, the later Bond that we know is a guy who can sort of go rogue, <laughs> you know, and and will sort of take opportunities where he can take them. So. You know, I, I like the way the, the ball gets rolling on this. I, I like where he ends up. I, I like the relationship with M here. I love that we see the the array of other double O's who we don't really get to see. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you know? They are all there. Yeah. 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 But no, yeah, I, I, I like yeah, this that's setup the conference room, by the way. Uh, yeah. A little bit elaborate, one might say. A little bit, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, well, and here's what's funny to me: not only is it this beautifully elaborate conference room, but then you have the uh, oh, I forget who it is. Is it the um, essentially the Secretary of the Interior? But he, he gets seventy and says, "Okay, here's your search area," and there's a massive map behind this tapestry, right? Just huge, and it's literally just to show a circle on about two thirds of the Earth. Okay, great. We spent all that time and all that money for this huge map so you could get up and point to it. Say, here's your search area everywhere. It's it's rather large. Um it's it's a big search area. Um Yeah. Yeah. Oh so, gosh! I like that scene. What <laughs> one of the things that I really like about the film is the way in which Bond has help in the field. Uh I love the way that Felix is introduced in the film. I thought that was really fantastic because they have a different actor playing him. Yes. You're not quite sure who he is, and they play on that, and I think it works, especially if you're seeing it for the first time pretty well because you think this nefarious guy is following Bond around. It turns out to be Felix. And then, right. of course, you know he has his help uh, uh, there as well with Paula. Q comes in uh, and, and, and you know helps him out in the field, giving him some very cool gadgets. Uh, but again, more realistic gadgets, honestly. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. most high-tech thing he has is the rebreather that just fits in yep. his mouth. He looks like, you know, before the Jedi had them in, in Star Wars. <laughs> right. Um, right. So I, there's some there's some really great elements to this movie, I think, that, that really work. And I think I would say that the plot of the film I have no issues with. You know, I feel like it's a well-thought-out plot. It it It's... You know, there's nothing in it where I'm going like, oh, wait a minute. That that doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense, you know, because mm-hmm. all the players that are in the film doing well, it just gets bogged down with the editing. And um, 
I, I think just the execution of the plot is is where we kind of get into some trouble. But uh, the yeah. actual what's happening, what the villains are trying to do, I think is great. And I think we have some really worthy villains because Emilio Largo, uh, who uh, another actor whose voice is doubled by somebody yeah, else, right. Uh, right. is I think just he's phenomenal as as the villain. Uh, oh yeah, he's he's intimidating and scary, and his plan is diabolical and kind of genius. Here's what I like about Largo: you need that scene with Spectre Number One killing the other guy okay to then first of all establish that number one is horrible and you do not want to cross him but you also establish well for lack of a better word how much of a badass largo is oh yeah yeah because number one trust largo i I have to hand it to largo if i if i were in a a a corporate environment with largo i'd say that that guy is a self-starter he, you know, <laughs> he, he, he finds a plan and he's confident to see out that plan, to make sure that plan will work. Um, so by killing off, you know, a, a, a specter underling um, who has been embezzling funds, it actually builds up your impression of Largo because Largo is that much tougher. He's that much more, say, competent on the specter end okay and on the spectrum one, yeah, yes on the spectrum of the spectre, <laughs> uh that number one can just say sure go go carry out your plan so you kick off with largo not needing to see him do anything to anybody just be the guy who can very coolly slip in and say i'm not going to disappoint you i've got the better idea here's what we do now no, I I hadn't even thought of it that way, but that's such a a great observation, the fact that yeah, this guy would have to be so ruthless and so smart to have made it this far in an organization that does not tolerate failure <laughs> no, whatsoever. No, they do not. <laughs> um you're always on the hot seat. Yes. So, uh <laughs> unless yeah. you're Largo and then it's okay. Um Right. And so no, I I think that's really a neat thing but i also again i have to say the plan that they've come up with is is ingenious because it feels like it could happen in any time in any place it's mm-hmm. not tied to it's not moonraker it's not one of those things where you're just like oh gosh this is so over the top there's no volcano layers yet or anything like that this all just feels like something that could happen today and right. i think that makes it Really unique and really really special uh, in, in the Bond, you know, uh, storyline because you could even see something like Doctor No kind of happening or uh, from Russian with Love. Goldfinger's is the one that's really a stretch, but this one it, it feels again it feels a little bit more grounded and, and it's nice for that because it could have felt just so way over the top and i think it starts to feel like at that at the end with all of the underwater scenes but still mm-hmm. it's pretty realistic except for you know i mean there's nothing realistic about that boat being driven uh that's just yeah anyway but right. <laughs> on top of that you have fiona uh, the Spectre agent, who is, I think, is so interesting because, John, she is the antithesis to Pussy Galore. 
Yes. And I think that's so interesting that they make that commentary in this film. Uh, totally on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently that was a, a response to criticism that was leveled at Goldfinger for that scene with Pussy Galore. And it's nice to see Bond taken down a notch. Fiona is a, uh, she is a tough character and she's beautiful and she is dangerous. Um, I, I love the way she's introduced. We don't know quite what's going on. We reveal the specter ring. So at least Bond knows what's going on at a certain point and he still goes there goes there <laughs> but um and, and i mean in his comeback to her is is yeah. is wonderful saying do you think that really gave me any pleasure i'm doing it for king and country i'm trying to get information mm -hmm. has nothing to do with your feminine wiles so i love the interplay between them because they really are two secret agents going at it together not not just like that but i mean that they're locking intellectual horns with each other. I think that's one of the things that makes all of their scenes so interesting. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, she <laughs> she throws shade his way and and he comes back with, uh, uh, no, uh, you can't hurt me. No. <laughs> uh, it didn't mean anything to me. I swear. I promise. So, yeah, I, I, I believe him. I believe him. But uh, it, it for a moment there, it's just she she had the upper end. Uh, yeah. So and it is it is really a bit nice. of interplay. Well, and and again, I I really like that she calls out. She says, "Do you think that I'm just going to turn because we had this fling? You know, no, that's not going to happen here. It's like she had seen the last movie. It's it's like." <laughs> yeah, it's it's as if she had a conversation off screen with Pussy Galore right. and Pussy right. had been very upset that she had made that decision later on after, I guess, her and Bond hit the rocks and, right. you know, she was down and out at a bar and yep. her and Fiona met and so she knew what not to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's wonderful, though, is that I feel like Continuing here, the women of substance in this film does continue. It doesn't just stop with Fiona, because I yeah. really do think that Domino, she's a, a victim of a, an abusive relationship. Yeah. And she has only ever had her brother there to treat her well, and she would love a way out of this relationship with Largo she realizes that Bond is not necessarily here to rescue her. And in the end, she takes it upon herself to save him. And that's, I think, a, again, a wonderful turn on the Bond woman. Rewatching this movie, and a movie that I have not watched as many times as some of the other Bond movies, when you introduce Domino, I kind of was, I was trying to put the pieces together ahead of time. And I was thinking, okay, well, she's the victim here. And they do victimize her a couple of, I mean, certainly later in the movie when Largo has got her tied up and, and he's on the verge of torturing her, that, that's, wow, that, that's intense stuff. E even just what we don't see. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it is really intense. But I like that they redeem her. They give her motivation for the choices that she makes, which is really what's critical here. You know, we, we, we can't just sort of judge her for being the victim in quotes. 
because everything that she does is motivated. And then she's got the strength within her to do what she does at the end. So there's a lot that I like about her. Well, and and it is really interesting because they did have some other choices in mind for her. And I want to talk about that real quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they originally had very close to signing uh, Julie Christie. Yeah. Uh, which, right. what a different actress for the role because, you know, Domino comes off as, you know, which she is, very exotic, um, yeah. European. And, yeah. you know, Julie Christie, I think, would have been uh, just a completely, I don't know if the role would have come off the same that it does. I don't know. What do you think? I, I can't picture that at all. Um, there, there's something about Claudine Arger as uh, uh, Domino. And it's funny, you, you had the note that I had that, they dubbed her voice as well. Yes, yes. You know, because the, the original voice was just too French. It was too exotic. So they had to, to step that back a little bit. I can't picture Julie Christie at all because that's a voice that they would not have dubbed. And you just sort of wouldn't have bought her, I think, in that world. Well, and then the other two that they, they really wanted were uh, Raquel Welch and they, they also looked at Faye Dunaway. Uh, Raquel Welch obviously can completely picture in this role, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because she has a lot of the same properties that Claudine has. Mm-hmm. Uh, very exotic, very European. I think what they were looking for, but again, Faye Dunaway feels very much like Julie Christie. It's just it, it's almost left field for this the role as we, we're given. It just doesn't seem like she would have been a great choice either. Well, and, and interesting that, you know, Raquel Welch, uh, that she didn't do this because of Fantastic Voyage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you think of Raquel Welch's star rising after that movie and really being an icon in the late 60s and early 70s. Had she played this role in this movie, it would have been kind of at the right time. Yeah, because it would have. She wasn't a household name at the time, and she still had that kind of exotic presence. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I like the accent here, even if it is a dubbed accent. Um, I, I, I think all of this is sort of came together right. Certainly would not have turned down Raquel Welch in the role. No, but I do like Claudine. I, I think that uh, she brings a great vulnerability to the role. Uh, she's mm-hmm. very believable in the role. Um, I think she's uh, beyond beautiful. So, mm-hmm. I mean, she mm-hmm. she definitely fits the, the, the role there. But it's everything else that she does with the character that she's given. I think she really makes it. And, and so uh, I, I, I like Domino is one of my favorite Bond women. Um, And and so uh, it's because of all of the things that we've already talked about. And uh, I also liked, and and this was really interesting, having Bond have a spy partner, Paula, uh, there to help him. Uh, You know, she's part of the Secret Service there. uh, And I really liked that idea that, he had somebody that was his equal. It wasn't about whether they were sleeping together or anything like that. You know, that was a woman, very competent. He could trust her to do her job. And, you know, she just ends up, you know, paying the price for being in the spy business. And I just, I, I liked the fact that you had a, a woman in there that had nothing to do with her relationship with Bond and whether it was about them, you know. Yeah, um, I, I like the way that she's introduced she she starts out 
tough and and she really is the female felix leiter in in this case you know i i hate the fact that we lose her mm-hmm. but at yeah. least we lose her you know in the line of duty assuming that it is her own choice you know she poisoned herself the, the uh, they said well they thought it was cyanide that there was no other option for her yeah I, I i kind of i sort of have mixed feelings about that she's somebody that i would almost like to have seen come back the way like that we felix, have felix yeah. Leiter come back you know but she's good for for what we had of her she was quite good mm. no i i'm i'm right there with you and I could definitely have seen her being a recurring character, you know, not every film, you know, uh, but like a Felix bringing her in when you have the opportunity, I think would have been really fun in some of the ways in which they've played the relationship with uh, Bond and Moneypenny in the Craig films, you know, uh, she would have been really interesting. Uh, And especially since it didn't seem like there was kind of any romantic attachment there. It was just two professionals working together uh, yeah. and, and trusting each other to do their job. So I, I thought that was really wonderful. Um, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about was... Um, oh, wait wait a sec, though. Before you move on from the women, I think it's very important that we talk about one of the unsung heroes of this movie, and that would be Molly Peters as Patricia. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right. I almost forgot. How could I forget the, uh, <laughs> the wonderful uh, masseuse? And um, I, I know Bond could not beautiful, forget. And I just kind of felt dirty watching this movie again uh, w- with her in it because she gets so manipulated by Bond. And he basically pressures her into the uh, <clears throat> steam room <clears throat> For fear of losing her job. And he does, but he, then he does. she seems he to does, be quite enjoying creepy. it on the other side when she's in his room and not the steam room. It's like she came mm-hmm. back for more. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. She did. Because, you know, it's Bond. Bond. Yeah. He's got magic. She she must have talked to Pussy Galore too. But um, and also does a terrible job at strapping him into this 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 tension machine that's going to stretch out his back and then leaves the room. Yeah, that's that's always a great thing to do to patients. So yeah, right. So um, she she gets negative marks for the uh, job poorly done, but then uh, man, at a certain point, I just really felt for her. <laughs> you know, you know uh, um, when Bond tells her uh, another time and another place, uh, you know. Um, yeah, it's like yeah. The, yeah, yeah, get out of here, yeah. lady. I, I, I'm moving on. I'm like, oh, come on, dude. What was so frustrating about that too is that beyond that, the rest of the women in this movie are incredibly strong. Yeah, but what I I do think is very interesting is that the movie is very truthful that there are certain women that will allow themselves to be taken advantage of, you know, and mm. the rest of the movie Bond is with women who that is not going to happen anymore, especially, you know, Domino, she's coming out of that. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. men have been using her uh, in her life for far too long and she's, you know, mad as hell and she's not going to take it anymore. So uh, (laughs) she'll shoot you in the back for it too. So I I think that's a really interesting thing to see the different portrayal of the characters and and the way in which that works. Um, It is, it is unfortunate because uh, 
it does remind me of a Goldfinger when he slaps her on the butt and sends yeah. her on her way. It's it's very much the same thing. Um, and it is a product. I mean, we are smack dab in the middle of the swing in 60s. Uh, yeah. You know, this is before, uh, this is 1965, right before everything starts to get really weird. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this is, yeah, you're right. You're right there and... and uh, you're, she's uh, incredibly beautiful in everything too. She her her role just isn't as dynamic as the other yeah. ladies. Yeah, uh, it, it it's unfortunate. She kind of gets overshadowed mm-hmm. by you know Claudine Auger, Auger, and yes. um, uh, uh, Luciana Paluzzi certainly. Um, but yeah, there's something about that scene, like you say, in a movie that is full of women who have really interesting backgrounds and a real strength of character, even if they aren't the strongest person in the room. When you look at Domino, um, at least there's some believability and understanding about Mm -hmm. her situation. And uh, with Patricia, I just, I kind of cringe a little bit (laughs) when I see those scenes again. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely played uh, better in 65 than it does now. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that really it, it leads me then to the music and in the production of this. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about uh, one. Uh, we didn't talk about really the theme song last time, uh, mm. but I mean, what can you say? It's Goldfinger. It's but here, Tom Jones taking over the Thunderball song as well as John Barry's score. How did you feel like that works for this Bond film? Uh, I, I think this is probably one of my favorite overall scores um i mean i think goldfinger is pretty great as well obviously it's a sort of an iconic uh score i love tom jones's voice i love him belting out this song um (laughs) can't help it yeah um there are so many themes that are introduced in this by john barry And I kind of wonder if that was calculated, that the idea that these are additional themes that will make their way. You have the 007 theme, um, you have Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which uh, would have been a theme song used for this. Um, So you have all these alternates in there that have also become very well known along with the rest of the, the Bond musical oeuvre. Some of the use of the music is a little bit heavy-handed, you know? Yes, um, yes, and, it is. And actually, it's mixed pretty loudly on the soundtrack. Like, they want to make sure that you hear that music. And and you do. It, it, it It's <laughs> almost as if there's somebody in your head with the, that driving force of music. Bum, bum. <laughs> Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. It, 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 it's still in my head right now. Yep, yep. They will make absolutely sure that you remember it. But uh, I'm, I'm okay with that to an extent. I think we get a lot of good stuff in this soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Maybe the edit of it was not as good as it should have been. But yeah, man, I, I love uh, Tom Jones's Thunderball for sure. I think that you're right on on track, uh, right on target with, with the thoughts about the theme song and the music. I, I think like the editing of the underwater sequences, there's just a heavy hand in the, the, the music and the scoring for the film uh, where it just it feels like too much. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there is that overindulgence of Bond that it, 
it's you don't have to be so again heavy-handed you just don't you you haven't needed that before and there's no need for it now and and you just feel it here and it's unfortunate because i think you're right i like the use of more uh different themes throughout the film I, Barry really does a great job of interweaving a bunch of the different themes so it's not just one like every time Bond does something it's the Bond 007 theme there are other themes playing throughout the score and I like that it's really just the action where it becomes kind of very one note <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and and that's that's the only frustrating the only other thing for me is the production of this film is just incredible, as we talked about before, what they were able to do with the budget in, in creating the Disco Volante. Uh, the underwater sequences themselves, the way they're shot is is gorgeous. The look of the submarines that they create, which is just fabulous. I mean, Adams even said, you know, I realized that if I could draw it, somebody could make it. Uh, right. And that's what right. he learned in this film. Yeah. And what was interesting, though, is I feel like that the editing got away from Hunt in his fast editing for the fight scenes. Mm-hmm. He, again, he went a little bit overboard with some of that, and it it almost makes it feel a little bit more cartoony than needed yeah. in a lot of the scenes. And so I think that's one of the things that when I think about Thunderball, it's it's all those little things that start to accumulate that I feel like weigh it down. Well, stylistically, there's all these sort of strange choices that that you watch it, unlike, uh, say, a movie like Goldfinger, where even though you've got a fantastical set, you're really invested in that fantastical set. Right. Right. Um, And and the the world seems very complete. There were things that stuck out to me in watching Thunderball again, where I thought, um, okay, Bond's hotel room. This is the biggest hotel room I have ever seen. That's like a king suite. <laughs> it, it is massive. It, it's like somebody went to a real hotel, but then just said, you know what? We're going to knock out all the other rooms on the floor and just turn it into this giant single suite. And the room um, next to him was the, the same. It was just yes. <laughs> you know, so there was something about that that was kind of funny and distracting to me. Then you go to the underwater shots and the edits are really strange because they'll crank up the sound effects for certain things, a punch or uh, an air hose being cut or something like the here, kind of like a rubbery squeak when that happens. And then the camera will just cut down to, say, a close up of a spiny lobster. Mm-hmm. Or a knife that's just kind of falling down. Or a knife that's just falling. Yeah. We're, just, we're gonna follow that for a little bit and make sure you see that and make sure you see the reaction of the eel next to the knife <laughs> itself. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know that it was Planet Earth we were watching. <laughs> Planet Bond. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, there, there's the stylistic choices that are kind of strange. It is interesting, the the things that are very real world that stay here. I I think that even if you have fantastical elements like the the submarines and everything that that are real, as you pointed out, they were designed for the movie, but they were made as practical effects, practical props. The fact that they are underwater makes everything feel very real, even if the editing is incoherent. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you're, you you go, well, absolutely, there's no other way they could have done this other than actually being there. 
unlike, say, a shot of Sean Connery behind a glass wall with a shark swimming by him. Which uh, I love the story that they tell that yes. uh, they only had four panels and they needed five. And yes. they didn't tell Sean that. And the shark immediately finds the opening and swims uh. toward Connery. Uh, so, yes, I, I actually I loved that. Um, the, and, and then, of course, uh, the henchman who gets pushed into the water on top of a live shark. They mm-hmm. got paid, I think, an extra $10,000 for that. I, hey, I, yeah, I don't blame it at all. So, good money then and now. So, as long yeah. as you keep both of your legs and everything else. Yeah. yeah right. So, right. Um, it, 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 is, uh, it, it is designed with this sort of great blend of fantastical and real world. And, and those are the things that worked for us in the last couple of movies where you have a fantastical set like uh, the, the meeting at MI6 or the Spectre meeting or Bond's hotel room. But the things that are there that are real world sort of ground everything else. So the, the Junkanoo shots, that, that was actually happening, you know? Uh, so you, you have real world shots of what's going on there. You know, it's nice when Bond allows its characters to sort of inhabit a space that we can all sort of say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I, I, I can believe that that happened. Well, and, and that's one of the things that I think that these, uh, I'd say the first two movies and this fourth movie do the best at, better than most of the Bond films, is that they take place in the real world for the most part. They're, they're, they're not removed yet. You know, we're not to yeah. just going to fantastical places with fantastical layers and all of that. Everything feels, I mean, you could go to all of these places to which they are. Uh, you, you, there's no place you can't visit except for the Spectre set. You know, yeah. everything else is a place that you could go, um, you know, well, except for Bond's hotel. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you could probably go to the hotel they reference, but the rooms probably don't look like that. Uh, right. So, you know... Um, or, you know, I, mean, I don't know if anybody keeps sharks uh, in a tank, maybe. But, I mean, as long as they don't have freaking laser beams on them, it's, <laughs> we're, we're good. So, right. Um, right. But I, th- I think that, that for all the issues that I do have with this movie, there is still a real sense of grounded realism to it. And if it had been, I think, just edited it in a different way and tightened up, we would have had a film that would have been better than Goldfinger, honestly, mm. uh, I think. But mm. because it's allowed to expand beyond its britches a little bit too much, it, and, and stylistically, as we've talked about, I think it just kind of takes away from that. So I guess the question becomes, you know, through talking about it, what do you rank... Thunderball. It's interesting. You know, um, I, I think part of the, the point you're making there about how this could have worked better than Thunderball, I think it comes back to that plot that you're, you know, talking about the sealing of the nuclear weapons. If we look at Goldfinger as simply a criminal who wanted to get rich, and at a certain point you go, okay, well, other than smuggling over international borders, why is Bond really invested in this? And why is MI6 that concerned? 
about stopping this guy. This is a whole other level. This is something on the global political stage that has repercussions across all governments. So we've really raised the stakes here and we're much more invested in why MI6 is invested in this and they have all their double O's go out to try to crack this. So I, I think that's, I think that's why that plot works so well for you and works quite well for me too. I think the problem with this production is the production. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. there's, there's something about it that doesn't at the end of the day quite add up. And, and I don't know what the solution was. Was it a less tired Connery? Was it maybe a story editor who could have come in? You know, this movie has like six different writing credits on it. Could you afford a seventh to come in and really just boil things down to their essential essence here and make sure we're not wasting scenes? You needed the Nick Meyer of Bond films to come in. Yes, that, exactly. You need the Nick Meyer of Bond films to come in and fix this and boil it down to pick the best elements and make those elements work. Was it the film editor who got all these pieces and then whether that person's decision or pressure from producers saying, nope, we spent $9 million, they're going to show $9 million worth of footage, so you better make it happen. Um, I think there are all those elements that could have potentially taken away from what should have been a better movie. Now, that said, this is not a bad movie by any stretch. This is a good movie. It's a good Bond movie. It's not a great Bond movie. I think I'm going to give it out of five. I'm going to give it three and a half uh, totally fictional, will not work in the real world rebreathers. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I really, I honestly can't add much to what you said. I think that we have nailed the issues, and I do think that we... Um, did that articulately in saying it's the execution of the plot where the issue comes in and the stylistic choices that they made, the editing choices, uh, the production choices, and maybe, just maybe, not allowing maybe Sean a year off to mm. rest, relax, rejuvenate, come back fresh. Uh, I, I think all of those things you can really see. It'll be interesting to jump into the next film to see if, if that trend continues. All in all, I think you're dead on when you say that this film is not a bad movie. It's just not a great movie. It's not a great Bond movie. It is three and a half out of five cut rebreathers which there are so many of them in this film uh but uh you will see that played over and over again with different people uh because that's the best way apparently to stop somebody underwater is to cut their rebreather uh but um yeah it, it just it doesn't live up to the potential that the story had and and that's unfortunate there's stuff in this movie that is very satisfying to james bond fans they knew that they were making this movie for the people who had just seen Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger the previous three years. But I think you could take Goldfinger. Well, I think you could take any of those three, but I, uh, of the first three, but I think Goldfinger maybe from Russia with Love as well, put it in front of somebody who doesn't know much about Bond and they can still get into it. This one 
has better payoffs for the people who are already invested in it in those first three. So they're just sort of there with Thunderball to absorb how much more bond it can get. Um, so in that respect, it is kind of a victim of its own success. And that's where you do have to have somebody come in and just say, nope, nope, no, no, no. We're going to slash all this stuff. We're going to kill the darlings. And we're just going to focus on the story again. But the 50-year history of Bond is full again of that pendulum swinging one way or the other. It gets a little funnier. It gets a little more serious. It gets a little more lavish. And then we reel it back in to make movies that are a little tighter. But that's the sort of the reality of, of what happens when you have the pressure of making sequel after sequel after sequel, and then trying to gauge what is the appropriate movie to make for that audience. Um, by the way, I, I can't let a Bond movie go without um, mentioning the, uh, the Man from Uncle tie-ins. And there, there are more than a few here, but the two that I really like, uh, Count Lippy, who uh, Bond meets at the uh, health spa early on. He's the first Spectre goon that we really see. Count Lippy is mentioned in the 2015 Man from Uncle movie. Oh. Uh, he's, yeah, he gets beat up in the bathroom. That's right. That, right? You're uh -huh. right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's hilarious. So, oh, and if you've not seen that movie, go out and get the 2015 Man from yeah. Uncle and play it now because, oh my gosh, fantastic yeah. film. So that's a great little call out. And then uh, Luciana Paluzzi is in two Man From U.N.C.L.E. episodes. Uh, she's actually in a Girl From U.N.C.L.E. episode as well. Um, but yeah, it, well, two, two is stretching it. She's in a Man From U.N.C.L.E. episode that was then recut into one of the Man From U.N.C.L.E. movies. Oh, okay. And actually a similar setup. She's, she's a femme fatale. She's a bad guy. And these guys who were lured into her home, they meet uh, an untimely end, except for Napoleon Solo. Well, of course, Napoleon <laughs> Solo, too cool for school. Uh, definitely cool, not going to yeah. get taken by but, anyone. Uh, so, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Well, uh, yeah. I'm. We have again very slowly been watching through with my uh, my wife's parents uh, the first season of Uncle. It's it's been a lot of fun to go back and watch cool. that old show and a uh, fantastic. So, if you've never seen something like that. It's it's wonderful to go back and see, especially when uh, as we're talking about the Bond films, the way in which this genre just exploded, and and of course, A Man from Uncle really helped continue that on to give people a, a way to satiate that hunger till the next James Bond movie came out, uh, and so I, I really really have enjoyed that. So yeah take our recommendation, go watch that. And I'd say before you even do that, maybe just get that 2015 Man From U.N.C.L.E. Uh, film. Uh, I think that's a great way to, to dive into the series and, and kind of get a taste of, of a little bit what it's like. Uh, and of course, done in a modern style. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's just a joy to watch. It's it's such a fun movie, and uh, we actually did talk about it here on the 602 Club. Myself, Norman Lau, John Champion, and Alice Baker, we all did that back in 2015 uh, in episode 44, West Side Story for Spies. So definitely go check that out. Uh, totally mod film, so you're going to love yeah. it. Uh, but cool. I appreciate the fact that, that, you know, John, we get to sit around and, and talk about Bond and so many other incredible things here on Trek FM because of the wonderful people that we have supporting us through Patreon 
here on the 602 Club, uh, we've got some amazing associate producers through Patreon. We have Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Norman Lau. And I want to say how much I really appreciate them for choosing this show to be an associate producer of. Now, Trek FM, because of our size, we need listener support to make sure that we can bring all of the content to you each and every week. So if you go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of the team, we have some wonderful perks that come uh, with different levels of contribution. And honestly, every little bit helps, uh, you know, and so go over there, check that out and see how you can support all the great content that comes to you uh, free every single week. Um, you know, we, we do this because we love it and we hope you love it too. So you just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, John, um, I can't imagine it just doing this series without you. It's been such a, a blessing to have you on the show. It's been so much fun. Uh, we've got a couple more Bond films sprinkled throughout the rest of the fall and very early winter uh, for everyone. But uh, before I let you go, make sure just let everybody know where they can find you, of course, online and about what else you're doing in podcasting. You know, oddly enough, I don't just talk about James Bond and uh, and spy movies. No, you don't. You know? Yeah, hard to imagine. I actually do uh, talk about Star Trek from time to time. Uh, so every week on Mission Log, you can find us at missionlogpodcast.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, Mission Log Pod. My personal Twitter account is DVD Geeks, so you can find me there. Um, but do check out Mission Log if you like Trek then you'll probably, hopefully, find something to enjoy in Mission Log. Um, we are, as of this recording, approaching the middle of the fifth season of Next Generation. But if you go to our backlog, this being the 50th anniversary year of Star Trek, I've been hearing from people who have gone back to watch the original series and listen to our original series coverage along the way. And then after that, you have the animated to look forward to and the original cast movies and just so much more just a lot of track out there so mission log podcast and more coming and more coming yes yeah well you could find me on twitter at matt rushing zero two i am here on the network doing the orb with chris jones uh, where we talk about deep space nine and then of course i do literary treks with dan and bruce where we're talking about the books and the comics of star trek as well as getting a chance to interview the authors it's a lot of fun I uh, just wrapped up the uh, Legacy series with uh, Dayton Ward. You'll be hearing that soon on the network. I uh, talked to John Jackson Miller recently. Uh, it's just a blast getting to talk about uh, the books and the comics with them. And then, of course, also doing the General Geek Show that you're hearing here at the 602 Club. So be sure to go check out all the different episodes that we've got backlogged for you. So much great stuff. And, of course, we've got the uh, Star Wars special feed so all the star wars episodes are in their own feed so if you just want to hear all of those search for that on itunes as well and doing a, another star wars podcast with my good friend john mills called aggressive negotiations you can find that on the nerd party and you can also find that on itunes just search for aggressive negotiations well thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear <laughs>